Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's give the people what they want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch. Today it's Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Last week I was in Nepal, uh, almost underwater. It's monsoon in Nepal and I was stuck in a traffic jam, couldn't join. I'm back now in Santiago, Chile. Zoe is also here, but not able to join us. So once again, it's two of three for two weeks. Show 141, edging up to the 150th show, Prashant. That's a big deal in cricket. It's a big deal when you score a century. It's almost as big a deal when you're at 150. And good God, we're edging on to 200. Um, numbers, you know, in France, in the Elysee Palace, they must be worried. It's like bowling pins falling, you know. They lose, um, you know, Guinea. They lose control in Burkina Faso. They lose control in Mali. We're going to come back to Niger in a, in a second. They lose control in Niger. And then suddenly leaving the Sahel, going south to Western Central Africa and Gabon, a coup, unsuspected. Although, Prashant, to be fair, we've been saying this is a contagion of coups. We don't know where it's going to end. Maybe next Chad. But none of us said Gabon. Absolutely. And uh, in some senses, it uh, seems almost, uh, you know, it seems a very likely candidate now that you look back. And that's one of the interesting things about these coups. Once these coups happen, it seems like, you know, uh, it was definitely bound to happen. Or why didn't it even happen earlier? In this case, we have the Bongo family, which has been in power for 57 or 56 or 57 years, father and son, uh, ruling with a considerable amount of support from the French, uh, you know, France really backing this family uh, for decades now. And you have an election which was held uh, in uh, what has been described universally as, you know, not not really the best conditions at all for elections to be held in because the organization was apparently pretty bad. Uh, you know, at some point uh, there were a lot of restrictions. Elections laws themselves had been changed, which made it highly irregular. We have a report on it uh, by a writer, Tanapriya Singh, who has also spoken to sources over there. And what one of our sources told us was that even if this coup had not happened by the military, what would have definitely happened was would, would likely have been mass protests because the nature of the election itself was so suspect. The credibility of the electoral process was so suspect that it was very unlikely that you know there would have been actually acceptance of the results. And uh, in many ways, you know, I, while of course Gabon is in Central Africa, the issues of that region are maybe a bit different from that of uh, Sahel, we, you'll be talking about Niger soon, slightly different set of issues. But there are also some commonalities. I mean, in many countries in this region, you have rulers who have ruled for extremely long periods of time, all of them very close, many of them very close to France. Uh, and, and despite many of these countries being extremely rich in terms of resources, only a very small elite has benefited from the kind of uh, you know, from the wealth of these countries, while most of the people have not benefited at all. So it is actually, you know, in many of these countries, the situation is very ripe for these kind of popular mobilizations, overthrows. And like we talked about in many parts of Africa itself, often what happens is that it is a military or a section of the military that becomes a sort of conduit or that manages to channel what the general sentiment of the people is. And that there is definitely what seems to have happened in Gabon as well now. What direction this group of military forces will take is a different question. It's still <clears throat> too early to say, you know, they may uh, they may hew back to the uh, 
uh, or what do you call old line with some kind of changes or they may recognize what is definitely in a process across the region and take a much more uh, different stance especially with respect to how resources for instance are uh, being mobilized uh, gabon is one of the few countries which uses the cfa franc that currency which is an enduring legacy of the kind of impact and control that france continues to have on its former colonies and you know it's very rich in terms of uh, resources including for instance i believe manganese if i'm not mistaken and uh, the one of the french companies it's the world's largest producer of manganese ore it has a very substantial uh, mining presence in gabon as well i think about uh, there are there are even now french soldiers in uh, Gabon, it's a small number, 350 to 400, but French troops continue to be there. French firms have benefited from the oil uh, licensing, uh, when it comes to oil licensing especially. So all these processes that we've been seeing, all these structures we've been seeing in various other parts of the region, very much replicated, very much present in Gabon. And so you see yet another instance of pushback. There have been, I believe, quite a few celebrations in inside Gabon itself in terms of after the coup took place, which means that the coup does seem to have answered what was clearly a demand, what was clearly felt by the people. And now, so, uh, you know, like you said, very difficult uh, and uh, tumultuous times for the French who must be uh, seeing, you know, like it's re it's really like nine pins. And it's not just governments that are changing. It's also a vast wave of popular mobilization, popular anger, which is getting channelized through this. Very important that you mentioned popular anger. Also, of course, there are institutional problems. For instance, it is incumbent on the African Union, based on the charter of the African Union, to condemn these coups. African Union has once again condemned the coup in Gabon. Uh, this should not be read too deeply because it is, uh, as a consequence, a reflex of the African Union's charter. Originally, the organization of African states based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Ethiopia, which on 1st January will be a member of the BRICS bloc. It's a reflex of the charter that the AU has to condemn the coup as it condemned the coup in Gabon and previously condemned the coup in Niger. But pay attention to the fact that when ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states and its peacekeeping function, this is again a curiosity, Prashant, because one has to wonder about an economic community having a peacekeeping force. Um, that was not in the original charter of ECOWAS, but now it's become very much part of their work. When ECOWAS started making noises about a military intervention into Niger, the African Union said no military intervention. And I want to emphasize this to show that even within the states of the African continent represented in the African Union, there is a very complicated situation at play. Again, by reflex, they have to, you know, because of the charter, they have to condemn the coup. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they are not sympathetic with the situation on the ground. The mass struggles, in other words, creating a certain context for the AU to say no military intervention, a lot of loss of life. That hasn't stopped Niger's uh, problems in many ways. Firstly, the borders have been closed by neighboring states. This has created a serious problem for supplies in Niger. Niger is having a hard time re resupplying shops, resupplying petrol pumps and so on. You know, there is a kind of economic war already on against the government and people of Niger. Point number one. Point number two, and I think this bears some reflection. ECOWAS hasn't stopped talking about intervention. 
There was a story that ECOWAS says is now fake, reported by Agence France Presse, which said that ECOWAS had the commission, the economic, um, uh, the commission of ECOWAS had produced a report uh, written in French, which they had, in which they had said that there's going to be a nine-month transition program for Niger. Now, what that would mean is that effectively ECOWAS had come to terms with the coup and said that, okay, there's a coup and now nine-month transition plan. I read the report in Agence France Press and thought, oh, that's interesting. Very quick turnaround from ECOWAS. And then ECOWAS released a statement saying, wait a minute, that's fake. That's fake news. There's no such report. I found that fascinating. Here's a French um, wire service, Agence France Press, releasing a report saying, well, we'll come to terms with this coup regime in, in Niger, which now has a civilian leader. Um, and then ECOWAS says, no, 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 that's fake news. Meanwhile, uh, and here's the interesting way in which these stories are quite complicated. Um, meanwhile, Algeria. Uh, Algeria is playing a very interesting role in the question of Niger's uh, coup d'etat in particular, but also, of course, because of the border with Mali and, and the relations with Burkina Faso, this has an impact. Algeria's president was in Moscow talking about effectively, didn't use the phrase, but U.S. imperialism, talking about the role of the U.S. dollar and de-dollarization and so on. The United States government was very annoyed and they called in the Algerian foreign minister to a meeting with Blinken where he was scolded and told, look, this is outrageous. You know, you can't be talking like that. All right, fair enough. Uh, that's fine. And then there was a telephone call. U.S. Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, Molly Fee, on the, um, the last day of August, had a phone call with Algerian Foreign Minister Ataf, where she basically said, um, you know, uh, the, the behavior of Algeria, Algeria saying that they wouldn't allow their land to be used, you know, or their airspace to be used for an intervention against Niger. Um, you know, Mr. Ataf had made this quite clear in some remarks earlier. Um, you know, all of this happening while, you know, there is a sense that confusion maybe let me put it this way and even my report sounds a little confusing prashant that's because the realities are confusing um here's ECOWAS saying uh, we're going to have a transition and then saying no that was a fake report then the algerians say you can't use our airspace the americans calling them in uh, blinken and molly mcfee quite upset with with the um with the algerians for their behavior here um the algerian uh, you know, uh, leadership is meanwhile saying we are thinking about the change in the world scenario as the change in the BRICS takes place. We are not going to take instructions from Washington, D.C. ECOWAS, um, military chiefs meet and say, well, maybe we should intervene. And then comes Abdul Fattah Musa, the commissioner for political affairs, peace and security of the ECOWAS bloc, who says um, ECOWAS forces are ready to go at any time into Niger. Very confusing situation. No clarity on the ground. Um, it looks to me, and if I can summarize this report, it looks to me, um, and you know, again, this comes with, uh, as it were, uh, you know, stories that are moving at such a rapid pace, it's hard to digest what's going on. But if I could summarize, it looks like the West is continuing to be upset by the coup in Niger. That's true. The West wants to find a way to reverse this coup in Niger, but without inflaming popular opinion too much. 
And therefore, instead of trying to do some kind of quick overthrow in Niger, trying to build a continental support for the Western position, this is not happening. And it's not happening because governments like Algeria, um, governments like, um, you know, in, in fact, not only Algeria, but I must say, even Nigeria, where there is doubt inside large sections of the elected um, body that are not keen on an intervention. They are also responding to mass pressure. Very important, therefore, what you said about, um, about Gabon, that there are popular protests. There is mass support for this. It's going to be difficult to turn it around, particularly given the fact that your coup leaders in Gabon, Prashant, have been out there investigating corruption, arresting members of the family of Mr. Bongo, whose family is governed forever. It seems a little bit like the Haiti story, which I know you're going to come back to, you know, where Papa Doc and Baby Doc governed in Haiti from 1957 for decades, very much similar with the Bongo family in Gabon. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. Um, that's Prashant and I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We did a rather long section just now on the African continent and area, not covered with the kind of sincerity it requires, but so be it. Meanwhile, we're going to switch now to South Asia. Um, Imran Khan, the great cricketer, uh, one of my childhood heroes, the way he could move the ball in both directions, Prashant, entered politics, became prime minister, was overthrown, and now, God, what's going on in Pakistan? Right. Uh, it's uh, interesting in, in the sense that a lot of what we're talking about with reference to uh, Gabon and to some, at some extent, Niger, some of the uh, structural issues very much applicable in Pakistan as well. What we're seeing right now is definitely uh, the Pakistani establishment, uh, you know, the, the country's political establishment facing a massive crisis. There's no other way of describing it. So on the one hand, you have Imran Khan who was overthrown last year. And, you know, uh, in, of course, that's a very interesting aspect. What was the role of the United States in that uh, you know, uh, in, in that overthrow is actually now a very open question because of a cipher, a document that was released, which talked about a U.S. official giving an, you know, implying basically that they would like that to happen. But uh, more importantly, ever since Imran Khan was overthrown uh, and a government was formed comprising the traditional parties of Pakistan and very clearly backed by the military establishment as well, which plays a huge role uh, in Pakistan's politics. There's been this continuous attempt to foist cases on him. I believe he, he, he's accused in 150 cases right now. So, uh, you know, as arranging from all kinds of issues. So one of the major ones was something to do with corruption uh, regarding the sale of gifts from the state treasury, what is called the Tosha Khanna case. I believe it's around $500,000. Uh, it's a corruption case of around that, that amount of money. And Imran Khan was recently sentenced to that in that case. And he was, uh, you know, he was taken into arrest. But then a higher court basically suspended that sentence. But then again, Imran Khan was, but nonetheless, he was forced to remain in jail because of this case regarding this cipher we talked about, this document. And now there, there is a case against him that this was a secret document which he played a role in leaking. So what is happening right now is a very clear uh, legal battle between Imran Khan on one hand and basically the entire establishment on the other. And this is, of course, not the beginning of it. We saw that in May he was arrested. There was a massive nationwide uprising which took place. He was released after that. But after that, what has happened is that the Pakistani establishment has gone after Imran Khan's party with a vengeance. 
Uh, many leaders are declaring that the office party declaring that they will either quit politics. Many of them, you know, even uh, leaving the party. So an immense amount of pressure that is being applied. And it is important to note that all this is happening because on August 9th, the National Assembly of Pakistan was dissolved, which means that elections are supposed to take place within three months. Now, what has also happened is that uh, the election authority has said that they're going to redraw the uh, you know, electoral constituencies and hence the elections are going to be postponed. So now we're looking at maybe elections being held in January or February. But uh, this basically gives the establishment more time to sort of try to uh, disqualify Imran Khan in whatever way possible and make sure that he does not come back. Because what does seem to have happened is that uh, whatever his record during governance was, and of course, Imran Khan did compromise with the IMF, etc., uh, etc. Et but especially after he was overthrown, uh, he has, in, 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 in some senses, really been able to channelize the anger of a large number of people who are extremely upset at the economic situation and the security situation in the country. And the new government that came into power after that, the coalition of these two establishment parties, has really not been able to do anything to uh, resolve the massive inflation, the kind of free fall that Pakistan's economy is going through right now. And so Imran Khan's popularity has actually surged since then, also because of the perception that he was unfairly overthrown uh, as part of a conspiracy. So all this put together, it is uh, this has given a lot of backing for him. And then it, it seems that the establishment forces are now desperate to sort of make sure that he does not, he and his party are not able to contest uh, legitimately and properly in an election because they fear that he might come back with a powerful majority and then uh, their chances are, you know, in very, uh, they, they are in deep danger. Also important to know that it does seem like the military establishment also backing uh, this attempt to persecute. Khan, the judiciary, interestingly, is quite divided, it seems like, because you have, uh, there's been a lot of to and fro uh, between various courts, some courts declaring him guilty, others saying that the verdict was not right. Uh, you know, some giving him bail, some instructing that he remain inside prison. So a very divided judiciary, a very divided uh, establishment in every sense. And so definitely we are going to see some very, very rough months in Pakistan. Uh, you know, Imran Khan being in jail out of it, uh, the uh, full-fledged attack on the party. So very, very important country to watch out in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, it's so important to look at Pakistan because it's not a small country. It's a major country in the world. Um, one of the countries with a large population and so on. I just want to say that in October, Tricontinental will be publishing a, um, a dossier written by Tamur Rahman, the leader of the Pakistan Kisan Mazdoor Party, which is on the deindustrialization of Pakistan. I mean, underneath these political developments is a serious economic problem, which seems intractable, Prashant. And I mean, you know, whoever comes to power um, is going to have to confront the same reality and putting the most popular politician in the country in jail is hardly going to be a solution. Now, everybody uh, pays attention to the question of the climate and the environment. I mean, the kind of reports that come don't even seem to explain the catastrophes before our eyes. We've already talked on this show about the wildfires in Canada, wildfires in Hawaii, the high temperatures um, in, in, in Japan, over 50 degrees centigrade uh, for a week on end and so on. Uh, the question of the climate is, is really right there. 
young people played a major role you know uh, one way or the other in saying to older politicians you know it's our planet you're destroying you know you'll be dead and gone what about our lives and so youth have played a big role in various climate movements not only in the west you know extinction rebellion and so on but also in asia and africa latin america young people may be inspired by things they are seeing greta thunberg and whatever it is but they are also playing a big role from the philippines um out to south america young people and therefore it's sort of fitting that the un committee on the rights of the child you know the united nations committee on the rights of the child is based on a convention that was created in 1989 it's a pretty young convention um they had not until now weighed in on the climate debate you know this was something that uh, was happening in the in, you know intergovernmental panel on climate change it was happening at the general assembly it was happening in united nations environmental fund unef you know it was happening in other places well now i think it's about time given so many young people paying attention to the issue of the climate and so on that the um un uh, convention on the rights of the child is sort of weighed in on this issue well they released something and prashant you know every time you look at the un documents they're so bureaucratic well it's called general comment number 26 on children's rights and the environment with a special focus on climate change that's the name of the text what the text basically points out is that uh, children worldwide been fighting against climate change calling on governments to protect the planet uh, now what the comment says is that children effectively have a right to a safe planet um i think this is an important statement you know that children have a right to a, stay, a, a healthy and sustainable planet with sustainable food available to them and so on um in my opinion this is one of those interesting un documents which i hope you know having been inspired by children's activism is now going to inspire more young people to get involved um to demand for instance uh that you know they have a, a role to play i mean the fact is that the children are least responsible for the climate crisis um you know uh, calculations by the, that the un has summarized show that every year 1.7 million children under the age of 5 lose their lives due to environmental damage um that's a pretty large number prashant 1.7 million a year of children under 5 losing lives because of environmental degradation environmental damage and so on you know that's a pretty important fact that they've lifted up um the last point about this document that i found very interesting uh, you know we talk a lot about trying to listen to the views of children and so on um you know it's a it's something that one says you know we must involve more voices of of the affected parties children um well what the un did for this report is that it created a global advisory board of experts and a team of 12 child advisors aged between 11 and 17 so a team of 12 children between the age of 11 and 17 worked to support the work of this committee um i mean i find this very interesting there's a young woman her name is aniva 17 year old climate activist from the pacific islands okay when this document was being released aniva made a comment and i want to read out this comment to me the general comment means worldwide change that is necessary as we move forward in fighting environmental issues and taking global action in protecting our planet for our generation and the generations to come 
It gives children a stronger basis in international law to enforce our rights to a healthy environment. Globally, we are seeing more action for people to protect the environment through human rights. And through this general comment, this will form an important part. I thought that was a really impressive statement made by a 17-year-old. Let's not underestimate young people. 1.7 children under the age of five killed because of environmental damage last year. Um, their rights are now established and enshrined through general comment number 26. I hope more young people read general comment number 26. I hope that is circulated and inspires more young people uh, to get involved. I mean, talking about environmental damage or degradation, Prashant, traveling to Haiti has been one of those things where you go in and you see the levels of deforestation um, and the impact this has had on Haiti's agricultural sector and so on. It, it, it plays a cascading role with all of Haiti's other problems. I think it's important we close out this section with your report on Haiti. Right, Vijay. I mean, <clears throat> quite a few developments, actually. The most recent one, a very shocking one, uh, I believe 20 people were killed uh, in an, by uh, gang members, people uh, marching, uh, people who are part of a congregation who are marching towards the headquarters of a gang in protest against or the, the region dominated by a gang in, in protest against the violence that this gang was taking place. This gang called the, the which calls itself the Taliban of Kanan, uh, of Kanan or however you pronounce it, is it's quite a uh, you know, strange name itself. But in fact, one of those many gangs which basically have largely taken over large parts of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and even many other parts of the country. And you know, we've been hearing a lot about gang violence in Haiti for many, many, uh, uh, many, many years right now. And you know, uh, in the, two years ago, in fact, I, I believe they had taken over large parts of the port. Fuel supplies were affected, for instance. And what is the or the response often from many countries in the world, especially uh, the United States and its allies, has been that we need to send some kind of a multinational force to Haiti to somehow, <clears throat> you know, suppress or uh, their violence from the gangs and restore security. And it was part of this uh, initiative that actually a delegation from Kenya recently visited uh, Haiti. And we have a very good report from our correspondent Tanya Wadwa on that who talks about it. So a delegation from Kenya visits Haiti to consider the possibility of Kenya leading a thousand member strong police force, which will be deployed in Haiti to establish security according to them. Now, it is very important to note that the idea of foreign intervention is something that the people in mass organizations of Haiti have been resisting very, very, very strongly now, because their point has been that, uh, you know, the reason we are facing uh, the kind of issues uh, that we face today, which is, you know, mass poverty, uh, you know, uh, say unemployment, gang violence, all of this stem from decades of intervention. You talked about the Addis, uh, you talked about the duelliers who were in power for the longest time. But we also, for instance, have uh, Jean-Paul Aristide against whom two coups took place, one of the uh, you know, leaders with that uh, very strange record of having been cooped twice. And then, you know, and this has happened again and again. There was a UN force which is accused of all kinds of crimes, including, for instance, introducing uh, cholera. So right now, organizations and people in Haiti are extremely against the idea of any foreign force uh, being brought in. But this is the inter uh, this is what uh, they keep uh, the international community keeps pushing in again and again. There is no idea of, for instance, accountability for people such as Oriol Andre, the de facto president, who's been in power since 2021. 
as after the assassination of his predecessor, who was also a de facto president, there was no question of holding proper elections. In fact, Haitian organizations are worried that this force might be brought in to sort of create the conditions to do a, a so-called uh, an election for the sake of it, which will bring again the very same people back to power, which will bring all the same issues back. There will be no change at all. So what they are saying is that, you know, let, uh, you know, offer a solidarity, yes, but let us take control of our destiny and allow us an opportunity to do so. So that has been the push from Haitian organizations. So a lot of anger and uh, even in Africa too, in Kenya, for instance, organizations in the left have condemned the Kenyan government's attempt to sort of uh, experiment with this idea of foreign intervention. So at a very, Haiti at a very delicate time, especially if this move to send a thousand member strong force gets ratified, there are moves to sort of create a resolution, for instance. So I think that is definitely going to face a lot of opposition, especially considering his previous record. Can you imagine, Prashant, here we are, it's a half an hour show, give the people what they want, which brought to you by People's Dispatch Globetrotter, half an hour show, and we keep talking about military interventions. Military intervention into Niger by ECOWAS, military intervention into Haiti by Kenya. Um, think about this world. You know, we put on the table the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. There's the United Nations. There's an ability for people to talk to each other. And yet here we are, short program, 141st episode of this program, military intervention, military intervention. Nine weeks to go till the 150th program. Please send us those selfies. Give the people what they want. Brought to you, People's Dispatch, Globetrotter. See you next week. Yeah, over.